welcome to the second episode of Scions of the Southland, presented by From the Rumble Seat. Uh, it is Sunday, August 19th, and joining me on a rainy night in Midtown Atlanta is Kate Lawson, Jake Grant, and new to the pod, Ethan Krieger. How are y'all doing tonight? Pretty good, thanks. I'm great. I'm great, too. We are continuing our 2018 football previews tonight, talking about everyone's favorite gimmick high school offense, the Flexbone. Next week, we'll talk about Tech's new defense under defensive coordinator Nate Woody and preview Tech's first game versus Alcorn State. But first, what is going on in the wide world of Georgia Tech non-rev sports, Mr. Grant? Hi. Um, it's pretty narrow at this point, but we did get to kick off the slate yesterday. Uh, Ethan and I headed over to uh, O'Keefe Gym with Akshay, and we watched the volleyball exhibition. It didn't start off great for the Jackets. Went down two sets to nothing, but we really found ourselves in the third set, I'd say. Right, Ethan? Do you think third set went pretty okay? Yeah, they played real well in the third set. I couldn't tell if it was because Auburn brought in their second team and their substitutes, but... For whatever reason, we looked a lot better in the third set. Auburn did have a, a star in the making in whoever that number eight was, but uh, she was on the on the floor the whole time in the third set. So I'm fairly confident that we played pretty well in that, and that was an accurate representation of the team. I think the biggest story of the night from the uh, exhibition, obviously the result doesn't matter, so taking the loss which was hard. Uh, we'll get to that. The biggest story of the night was Michaela Dowd, freshman out of Matia Valley High School in Illinois. Looked excellent pretty much across the board, front row, back row. She can do it all. And our uh, freshmen and our sophomores look good. So that's what I had hoped to see from the team. Yeah, they're really young and I really enjoyed getting to see some excitement for the future. I think we're going to be good for the next few years. Yeah, great recruiting class. I got to say it's my favorite experience on the flats. So even though some calls at the end may not have gone the way the Tech faithful and the fit, and maybe even the Auburn faithful, honestly, thought they should have gone at the end. But it was an exciting, exciting trip to O'Keefe. It always is. I mean, I, I think volleyball is one of those underrated sports on the flats that not a lot of people get to. But it is one of the best environments for Georgia Tech sports on campus. Uh, hot take. Uh, I'd put it out there in most any of the sports I've been to, I really like the small gym feel. Indiana, Illinois high school basketball type feel. It's great. But uh, Tech plays again Friday at noon against Idaho State to kick off the Hyatt Regency Invitational, I want to say. They're playing the Hyatt Regency Invitational and Hyatt Regency Tournament, as confusing as that is. But they play twice on Friday, uh, once at noon, and then a little later on against Idaho State and Winthrop. So those should be exciting. Head on over. And now we'll get back to football. Let's start by talking about Paul Johnson's offense. Like we were saying, in 2017, Paul's offense, let's see, 74th in total offense, 4th in rushing offense, 128th in passing offense, 87th in place per game, and 70th in scoring offense. You know, the only thing that sticks out to me on this list of rankings is fourth in terms of rushing offense. And I think on that on that rankings list, we're behind Army, Navy, and somehow Arizona. That's strange. 
But really, the question I want to ask today is what did we think about the offense coming off of 2017? You know, we talk a lot about how 2017 was a down year, it was a disappointing year after the team had built itself back up during 2016, went to a bowl game, won its bowl game, and was really looking up even after Justin Thomas graduated. But what are we feeling about, well, what are we thinking coming off of that 2017 season? I really like the way our offense looked last year in 2017. I mean, you look at, we were fourth overall in rushing offense, and that number's pretty in line with where Georgia Tech's been in the years they've been good. So to see them only win five games in a year, they finished fourth in the nation in rushing offense is a little surprising. I want to know what that rushing offense stat would look like without the uh, Tennessee game factored in, because I know we had like 600 yards, I want to say, something like that on the ground. I don't have the number in front of me, but I mean, we look great in that game, and that shouldn't take away from the season as a whole, even though that game didn't go the way we wanted, but Paul Johnson's going to find success on the ground. Even coming off losing Dietrich, uh, even coming off losing Marcus Marshall, he found a way to put in Jerry Howard to a lesser extent, but then definitely Cavante Benson, and they, pardon the pun, really, really ran with it, so I'm excited to see what they can do this year. Yeah, and they they started out really strong with those first few games, and you could kind of see everything sort of start to not necessarily break down, but wear off a little bit as teams got used to to Quan Marshall's game and figured out who I was going to be a contributor since really nobody knew what was going to happen until, honestly, kickoff against Tennessee. Um, and then you started to see some injuries pop up and just getting tired towards the end, so it faded away. But this year, I think it should be, honestly, if not improved, then certainly as good as it was at the beginning of last year. A little bit of that number from the Tennessee game is just because Tennessee had been preparing to see Matthew Jordan, a big, powerful inside runner who's got a very different game than Daquan Marshall. So a few of those 600 or so rushing yards had to be due to the fact that they were probably preparing for the wrong quarterback. You know, in 2017, it wasn't necessarily that the offense was a, was a liability. You could definitely count on the Georgia Tech offense to put up yards and put up points. Obviously, next week we'll talk about the defense, which was – where I would say most of our woes were. The 128th in passing wasn't for lack of effort on Paul Johnson's part because he called a lot of passing plays, particularly the second half of that Virginia game. It's not like he wasn't trying to work it in more. It's just we got to find the find the open man, and that comes down to the, the line and some wide receiver stuff. But, I, I mean, if that, if that comes up, we're always going to have that dynamic rushing offense so if, if we can make the passing kind of come up in the scenarios that we actually do use it, I think that 128th, really there's nowhere to go but up, you know? Yeah, and I mean, even with that 128, we're along with the other flex button schools, like Army and Navy. Yeah, 84 passing yards per game, not a, not a great look. But you also have to consider, okay, we don't throw the ball all that often, other than, like you said, that period in the Virginia game where Paul decided he wanted to be a pro-style offense for a little bit and started throwing <laughs> the pigskin around. Yeah, that Virginia game, too, I believe, was the game where Taquan threw his first pick of the season. So while he wasn't completing many passes and not throwing for many yards, he also wasn't throwing the ball to the other team up until that Virginia game. And from there on out, it kind of went downhill for him. But I did think it was interesting. It took him six or seven games to throw a pick, which is impressive considering how poor the passing offense was even before that. For sure. Yeah, and the the only times we really saw the offense struggle in general was against truly elite defenses, which were Clemson and Georgia, that didn't give up points to anybody, which is when they scored, what, 10 against Clemson, I think, and 7 against Georgia. But outside of that, they were 
you know, scoring consistently. And it was just going really well until you get to those guys that you really can't compete against from a talent perspective on defense. It did seem like every game other than Georgia and Clemson, it was, I guess shootout would be pretty apt. I uh, was at the Clemson game and even, even we, sh- we probably should have had more than 10 points, to be honest. We didn't play that bad, but we got inside the red zone or maybe it was even the 10-yard line and came away with three total points. You know, that's, that's a shutdown defense, but we still drove all the way to the end of the field up against said elite defense. You know, like they didn't really struggle to get those yards. It was just, you know, sometimes they didn't put the points on the board at the end of the drive. And there were some early turnovers with that too. I thought, right, with that the whole monsoon deal going on in the bad weather. Oh, yeah. yeah, that game was rough at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. The the entire stands were three inches deep in water, and the field was slick as heck. So I don't, I don't think it was nearly ideal conditions for them. I think it, it just came down to execution. And while we executed well, most of the time, there were a couple holes here and there, and especially in bad weather situations like Clemson and like Miami, Virginia where sometimes too. and Virginia, where we just struggled to put to to move the ball, and the red zone wasn't necessarily our friend, uh, and we couldn't get it done on the ground, and then obviously weren't going to get it done on the air. You kind of had to deal with the ebbs and flows of that. I think one thing to look forward to this season is when the bad weather games come, and they inevitably will. We're not going to play twelve games this year with perfect weather. When they come. Can Paul figure out a way to move the ball, especially on the ground, because against Clemson, against Miami, against Virginia, as you guys have touched on, we couldn't move the ball on the ground when the when it was raining. So I'm interested to see if we can turn that around this year. All right. Well, with that being said, let's talk about each position group on the offense in some detail. What I want to pose to y'all, as I am not a football guy, I really want to know what needs to change for when we talk about each unit, what needs to change for that unit in order for 2018 to be a successful season. So let's start at quarterback. Your presumptive starter is Taquan Marshall. Like we're saying, he was good on the ground, 1,146 yards on 247 attempts, 17 touchdowns, but he was a liability in the passing game. He only completed 37% of his passes, did net eight yards per attempt, but had 10 touchdowns to five interceptions. He was third in the ACC in rushing yards, fourth in points, and fourth in touchdowns that he was responsible for. Behind him, you would have Lucas Johnson, but uh, Lucas Johnson is out for the season, unfortunately, with a torn ACL. So Tobias Oliver, a redshirt freshman, steps up into the second string position, and James Graham, uh, true freshman steps into the third string position to round out the depth chart at quarterback. So what needs to change at quarterback for 2018 to be successful? Yeah. So the big thing for me is going to be trying to get the passing game going. If not, not more, not necessarily more volume, but definitely more efficiency is what we're going to have to have. Cause like we talked about earlier, if your offense becomes too predictable, especially when it's in a horrible monsoon downpour, where you can't move the ball anyway. If they know exactly what you're going to do, you're going to struggle a lot. And Taquan's had some issues with completing passes efficiently last year. And so without that aspect of the game, it becomes really, really hard to compete with teams, especially like Clemson and Georgia, that have such stacked defensive lines. 
um, as well as secondaries, but teams that have their strength in the defensive line where you'd really like to go out and exploit some of their weaknesses or at least relative weaknesses, which are sometimes in the secondary. Yeah, Cade makes a good point in that we've got to get the passing game going because unlike Army and unlike Navy, we're playing against the best defenses in the country week in and week out. And as good as we can be on the ground, you've got to be two-dimensional to beat the Clemsons, the Georgias of the world that we have to play every year. But for me, the main thing this year is going to be monitoring the hits on Taquan. I mean, 247 attempts last year in only 11 games. Over 20 attempts per game, if my math is correct. He can't take that many hits this year, and he shouldn't take that many hits this year because he's got to make better reads. On pass plays, he's got to do a better job of finding the open receivers instead of scrambling in situations where he should throw. And on run plays, he's got to do a better job of getting the ball to his B-backs on the dive, to his A-backs on the pitch, and not taking unnecessary hits. Yeah, and to that point, losing uh, Lucas Johnson really, really hurts in that regard. Just because you had hoped going into this season that Lucas Johnson would take a few snaps and maybe relieve Taquan Marshall in a few times as he kind of becomes groomed to be the quarterback of the future for the next couple of seasons, ideally. And I really don't think that we're going to see Paul Johnson with the same type of confidence in Tobias Oliver and James Graham, who are the next two guys on the depth chart, as you did with Lucas Johnson, just because of the experience that Johnson has in the program. So that's definitely not doing any favors for Marshall's stamina this year. Yeah, that's very valid point. I think if Marshall goes down, the fortunate thing about having Oliver as the backup is that in the spring game, he really made me think of Daquan and the way he ran and the way he ran the offense. So I don't think Paul would have to change too much up if Daquan goes down. That said, Daquan is the most important member of this offense. And if he goes down, we're going to have some serious issues moving the ball. I did want to add, I think Cade, you touched on an article a couple weeks ago that Daquan had a tendency not to pitch the ball. Yeah, so it's hard to really say if it was his tendency not to pitch the ball or maybe a different, maybe less confidence in his ability to pitch the ball from the coaching staff than we saw with uh, when Justin Thomas was here because he was so, so good at doing that, especially late on plays. But um, yeah, there was there was a definite decline in the amount that the A-backs were used. We'll talk some more about those guys later on. And you got the sense, especially early on in the season, which this was understandable, of course, that as Taquan Marshall was learning how to be kind of a starting quarterback, he maybe tried to make a few too many plays by himself. We saw it at the end of the Tennessee game, and then we saw it a couple of more times, um, especially early on in the season before he really settled into his role. But really making sure he uses all of his options and making sure that the offensive line has all of his options ready for him is going to be a big deal this year. Yeah, that's a very valid point. I think. A couple explanations for the lack of use of the A-backs. I know we'll touch on the A-backs in a minute. The lack of consistent play at tackle because of injuries was one concern. But Taquan's inability to have confidence in himself pitching the ball, I think, was the bigger concern. We saw several times throughout the season when Taquan was moving laterally, him pitch the ball with his inside hand instead of his outside hand. And when you see a quarterback in a spread option attack pitching the ball with his inside hand, for Taquan, it was his right hand as a right-handed quarterback. It shows you that he has no confidence in his ability to pitch the ball with his left hand. I'm sure the defensive coordinator across the field from Paul sees this and knows that they can push Taquan outside and make him use his pitch man. I feel like that's a risk, right? Especially if you're Paul and you're looking at this like, hey, I can't send Taquan out to the left side of the field because he has only one option and that's that's hit the defense head on. And 
that makes, and even not considering the pass game, that makes even a spread option attack, attack a little one-dimensional because you can't stretch the field in both directions. Now you're just limited to the quarterback's strong side. Yeah, that's something that I'm hopeful they saw on film and are going are gonna to fix this year and make sure Taquan can pitch the ball adequately with his left hand and force teams to actually you know, stack the left side of the field instead of stacking the right side and forcing Georgia Tech left. Yeah, and the, the, the offensive scheme, I wouldn't really say it's limited already in, in the scope of what it does, but it definitely has a game plan every time for what you want to do if you're Paul Johnson. And if your quarterback is lacking in any one particular skill set or is not comfortable doing anything, it's going to really hurt it. Example number one would probably be, first of all, anytime it rains and you can't throw the ball whatsoever and you're not confident pitching, uh, and you see the middle of the field just get shut down and the offense struggle. But point two would be a game like Virginia Tech in 2016, which Georgia Tech actually won. But it was Matthew Jordan starting, and he, I don't think, I think he, he maybe pitched the ball once or twice, but I don't think he even pitched it at all in that game because there just wasn't the confidence there for him to run the whole offense. Yeah, I think that game is a, a good blueprint of what they should have and probably tried to do last season with Daquan, but you know, hopefully this year he's got more experience and more ability now, so they won't have to worry about shutting down the pitch for entire games. Even though Tech won that game, I, I really don't think that's how they wanted to play. And I think they've touched. I think if they touched that on that in media days, Paul was like, "Yeah, we're starting to open up a lot of the playbook for Taquan, making the offense a little bit more complicated." Even Taquan said, uh, and this is going back to the passing game bit, that he was reviewing film during the spring and the summer, looking at where he was making bad reads, where he could have done better. And I, as he pointed to one example during the Virginia game where he saw where he focused on a receiver that was in the middle of the field and didn't notice Quas Cersei streaking down the edge of the field along the sideline, who was wide open, and then the ball ended up getting picked off. So I think, in general, given his season of experience and then given an entire training camp where he knows he's the starter and there's not really a QB controversy, it's an entrenched quarterback system, and Paul has given him a lot more leniency with what he can call it, how he can run the offense, I, I think Taquan is going to have a lot more confidence and he's going to trust uh, his offense a lot more this season. Yep, I agree with that. Cool. So... Let's move on to our backfield. Uh, let's start talking about the A-backs. Production at this position was definitely down in 2017. Like we said, Taquan sort of a, didn't really want to pitch the ball a whole lot. But there is a lot of data, raw talent, especially with the incoming class. And NCAA changes to redshirt rules now allow for a lot more rotation at A-back, especially since you can play these kids for four games or less before you have to burn a red shirt. So your presumptive starters at this position are going to be Clinton Lynch, a redshirt senior, who played injured last year, but really peaked in 2016 at 11.2 yards per carry and 30.6 yards per catch. Cross Hersey, like we've talked about before, also a redshirt senior, uh, averaged six yards per carry and 32 yards per catch in 2017 and Nate Cottrell a redshirt junior who in 2017 averaged 8.2 yards per carry and was mainly the kickoff returner so yeah so in 2018 for it to be a successful season what needs to change at a back I'm not really sure this year 
how much needs to change at a back for a for a productive season out of those three guys. I really like the three different kinds of skill sets that they bring between Lynch's ability to hit the big plays we saw in 2016. Cersei's ability to make guys miss open in open field and Cottrell's speed down the sideline. But I guess if I had to pick one thing to change for this to be a successful year for the A-backs, it would be Lynch getting healthy. Because with a healthy Clinton Lynch, it opens up space for Cersei, for Cottrell, even for Benson and Marshall inside. And so to have Lynch out on the edge making big plays consistently this year will help the whole offense. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. What what we expected last year, or what I expected last year, really, was for that to be a position of strength for the team. And it honestly probably still was a position of strength as far as depth and talent, but it just wasn't used as much or as efficiently as it had been in the past. Uh, since we saw the overall share of team rushing yards by the A-backs decrease to a five-year low, dating back to the 2013 season by a pretty significant margin. And there were some just some other issues where you would saw these guys not getting the ball nearly as much as you'd like. And some of that I think you can attribute to the strengths of the offensive line maybe. But overall, the things that need to change for them are not not as much A-back problems as they are other problems from the other members of the team. And then, like like you said earlier, Akshay, the new redshirt rules are going to help a lot too because I think we'll get to see some guys get more rest and bring in some of the new guys who are strong blockers, which is the way to Paul Johnson's heart. That's very true. Paul loves his A-backs to be able to block. I think. Amari Jarrett's probably the top candidate for the fourth spot in Paul's backfield at A-back this year. We've seen in the past he likes to play more than three guys. So for certain, somebody other than Clinton Lynch, Qua Cersei, and Nate Cottrell is going to see significant time this year. And I think Amari Jarrett's probably the top candidate, the redshirt junior. Yeah, definitely. And I think maybe uh, they haven't fully, fully decided on where Jordan Ponchez Mason's going to play. I think he's probably a better B-back than A-back, but he's still listed as possibly going to play some A-back, so that he could be another interesting option to watch, too. Yeah, I like him at B-back, but the deal at B-back is that you've got Benson, who's a junior, and Howard, who's a sophomore. I don't really see Ponchez Mason eclipsing either of them on the depth chart, while, you know, at A-back, you've got Lynch and Cersei, who are going to be gone after this season, so there's going to be more available playing time at A-back next year, so we'll see what they end up doing with him. I think yeah. he's played pretty solid at uh, at a back as well and at least in practice i definitely have seen that alluded to so that's i just want him on the field i think he's a going to be a dynamic player if he can get on there moving on we have b back this if you're not familiar with the flex bone option offense this is going to be your workhorse position this is the deepest position typically on the team in terms of talent and is usually its most productive returning from last year your starters Cervante benson now a redshirt junior uh, who was a thousand yard rusher in 2017 had a total of 1,053 yards on 204 carries for six touchdowns and netting fifth in the ACC in rushing yards and 10th in the ACC in yards from scrimmage. Joining alongside him is Jerry Howard, a true sophomore in 2017. He was used sparingly, but he was still able to get 7.6 yards per carry and two touchdowns. At B-back, Paul typically doesn't keep a lot of depth, and sometimes there just isn't a lot of people see the logjam for playing time and transfer out. I know Marcus Marshall, I think, has transferred out. 
Wade Weimerskirch from last year who went to West Florida for this season. But currently, we have two freshman options off the bench. The aforementioned Jordan Punches Mason or Christian Malloy. So, guys, what needs to change and be back in order for 2018 to be successful? So, what needs to change, I guess, to start with that, you need to rotate Jerry Howard in more behind Benson because as good as Benson was, and you look at Benson with the ball in his hands, He's everything Paul Johnson wants in a B-back. He runs behind his pads. He tries to run you over instead of running around you. He doesn't, you know, mess around in the backfield and jump cut and try to find a second hole. He hits the first hole he sees, and he hits it hard, and he's trying to get up the field as quick as possible. But 204 carries, like I mentioned with Marshall, even if it's not 247, 204 is a lot of carries, especially when you've got a guy as talented as Jerry Howard behind him. I mean, 7.6 yards per carry, even though that was only 23 carries and one of them was a long touchdown run. You still, you'd like to see Jerry Howard on the field more this year in his sophomore season. Yeah, we've really been spoiled by having really, really good B-backs throughout the last 10 years with Paul Johnson. And I was not expecting for anybody really to step up and continue giving us that type of production after Diedrich Mills was kicked off the team. But man, Cravante Benson and Jerry Howard are two really, really strong players. I don't think you really want any want them to change anything about their own games, but what you do want is to see, like Ethan said, maybe get uh, Jerry Howard a few more carries, whenever it's possible. But I mean, that's you might not even need that with how well Cravante Benson has been playing and played last year. Punches Mason probably won't see the field at B-back this year, except garbage time, barring injury. And Christian Malloy would be a good candidate for a red shirt, also once again barring injury. So I was just uh, I was curious, what situations have we seen Jerry Howard in prior to this season? I have in my head that it was short yardage and garbage time situations, but I feel like I want to say he was in a couple more. Yeah, I feel like he played in all 11 games, if I'm not mistaken. But more, it was garbage time, but in the close games, Paul would only go to Jerry Howard when Benson was you know, tired or slightly banged up. And this year, I'd like to see Paul go to Howard sooner rather than waiting for Benson to get tired, to get banged up. So if a key third down arises late in a drive, you've got Benson available to use and you're not forced to go to Howard, even as good as he is, much more unproven at B-back. Yeah, and the majority of his carries did did come in garbage time. Like you said, he was, let's see right here, I think 11 of his 22 carries came in garbage time because that was against Jacksonville State in North Carolina. And then maybe even a couple more, as I just forget the game script of a few of the other games we played in. Honestly, I, I don't I don't really see him as too much of a situational runner for the team. I think that his skill set really translates to being a whole, you know, four down player, just like Cravante Benson is, which is where he's been kind of roadblocked. Because there's not really a huge way to distinguish between the two as far as their uh, skill sets and the type of plays that they can make. Yeah, both showed the ability to hit. The home run last year we saw it from Howard against Jacksonville State and from Benson against North Carolina and in several other games, Clemson comes to mind. So I really don't think, like Kay just said, there's too much difference between the two of them, which makes it even more so that Paul needs to rotate between the two this year a little more than he did last year. Yeah, and I think they'll be helped by what looks to be an improved offensive line uh, which is where we're going next. So what a great transition. They'll be helped by an experienced offensive line, which should bode very, very well. In 2017, you saw 
Paul play musical lineman, as one of our writers referred to it, because of a lot of injuries. So your presumptive starters on the offensive line. At left tackle, you're looking at true junior Jehazel Lee. That's how it's pronounced. Uh, at left guard, you're looking at second-team All-ACC Parker Braun, also a true junior. At center, should be Kenny Cooper, again, true junior. Interesting note, he did miss spring camp with an injury. At right guard, you're looking at true senior Will Bryan, who had to be the Swiss Army lineman and play a lot of different positions. Right guard looks to be his best position, according to reports from camp. And then Andrew Marshall, redshirt senior at right tackle. There's also quite a bit of depth, looks like, on the offensive line. So, guys, once again, what needs to change with the offensive line, you know, other than staying healthy for 2018 to be a very successful season? So the big thing is that really, really unfortunate is that you can't afford a single injury anywhere on the entire line. Because oh, man, come on. I just said we had depth. Uh, oh, I know you've got depth, but the thing is that is it the depth you want on the field a lot is the question. Like you, you can, you, you're right that we have depth and that there's guys who have experience and you feel good about putting them on the field for maybe a few plays at a game or a few plays per game. But especially at center where you've now got Jay-Z Lee backing up Kenny Cooper, which there's been great reports about him actually, but that's a new experience. So we don't know what, what that mystery would be. And then if you're talking about losing a guy like Parker Braun, who's an all ACC type player, or even Andrew Marshall, who's a long time, maybe not a long time starter, but a very, very experienced guy. There's just not that type of talent backing those two, especially those two or three positions up uh, that you would say, I feel really confident in having this guy play a lot. Yeah. Going off of what Cade said, we've got five experienced linemen. And while I don't believe starts is a very efficient you know, measure of a talent of an offensive lineman. You've got five guys here with double-digit starts in their career, and behind them, maybe 10 combined, probably not even. So looking at Cooper especially, because we don't even know if he's going to be ready for the first game, if Cooper's not ready, it starts a very, very complicated chain reaction that will send Lee over to center, Brian out to left tackle, and probably Connor Hansen in at right guard. And you lose a little bit bumping Brian out to tackle because although Brian is a very solid offensive lineman, he's better inside and he's proven so over his career. So you really like to see him inside at right guard. And even if, you know, Connor Hansen's stepping in, he's not nearly as proven as Will Brian or Cooper, who would be missing at center. Yeah, definitely. He's been, Will Brian, I, I know you just mentioned, he's been kind of a journeyman his whole career. And that's probably where he gives you the most value as a player is just really filling in the gaps and giving you some some quality play in yeah. spurt as opposed to being just a full-time starter. One guy that I'm hoping can really step up this year and give us what would be, I mean, it would be giant if he could step up. Zach Quinney, there he is. Yeah, if Zach Quinney can step up, especially at left tackle where we're kind of trying to figure out who's going to play there, that would be a really, really big deal for this team because all of a sudden you go from having kind of like questionable depth at that position to having a solid starter and hopefully Quinny and then maybe some guy like Brian who can rotate around and play there whenever you need him to. Yeah, I think especially for Quinny, you're going to lose Marshall next year at right tackle. And, you know, we're counting on him to be a solid tackle this year, but somebody's going to have to step in there next year. And Lee will be a senior. Brian will be gone. 
So you're probably going to need Quinney to start in 2019. And it would be nice if he got some meaningful reps this year. Unfortunately, he's probably not going to get any meaningful reps barring injury or poor, for, poor performance from one of our five starters. But especially for me, if Cooper is healthy, I don't think you can move around the five you've got because Braun at left guard and Cooper at center is definitely the strength of that line. And if all else fails, you want to be able to, on third and one to ram Kiervante Benson right in behind those two big boys and count on a first down. Yeah, absolutely. Because as your offensive line, if it's if it says like strong across the line like you want it to be, it really makes it easy to do everything you want to do on offense. So you could see that kind of lead to maybe a revitalization of of a back play for this year. You could see see that cause even more efficient play by guys like Kiervante Benson, and it makes Taquan Marshall's life a heck of a lot easier too. Yeah, I think especially in pass protection, I remember the Wake Forest game last year, uh, Jahaziel Lee at left tackle had his hands full with all ACC defensive end Duke EG4. And I feel like every time Taquan Marshall dropped back to pass in that game, he was looking over his left shoulder to see if EG4 was coming or not. And EG4 had like three sacks in that game. So I really think more solid play out of left tackle will help Taquan in the passing game this year. Across the board, it looks like the offensive line should be one of the strongest positions in 2018 because it has so much experience. And I think Taquan can lean on that and really have success both in the passing game and in the option game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that experience is going to be a really, really big deal just because once you get guys, especially at the offensive line position, who know what to expect and have got some ACC experience under their belts, uh, even that, in the absence of maybe other aspects of your game that you'd like to see better, can make it a lot more or a lot easier for your quarterback to operate, just like you said. When you're playing against all ACC defensive lines, like you want your offensive line to be your strongest position and your most experienced position. Yeah, exactly. In week four, we're going to run out there against a Clemson team that had the ACC's first team defensive line. All four of them will be wearing orange in Bobby Dodd Stadium on September 29th. That's just a horrifying so, thought. That That's just completely scary, and I'm not even playing in the game. You're it facing, is a horrifying You thought. have a front five that may, has, like, a, on our side, that has a ton of uh, a ton of experience, but that has a ton of experience. Some of them are, are even uh, all ACC themselves, and then the Clemson comes at you with an entire, entire defensive line. That's all ACC, albeit preseason, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's going to be a little scary. Fortunately for the Jackets, uh, Clemson lost Dorian O'Daniel, who seemed to play the game of his career every year when the Jackets were on the other side of the field, on the other side of the ball. So without Dorian O'Daniel, hopefully we can get a little more on offense this year against them, even though they're bringing back that entire defensive line, and they are rather scary. Yeah, hopefully we can get some push, give Taquan some time to be a, I mean, not a great passer, but at least a semi-decent passer, as Paul usually wants. With that being said, let's go back to the passing game for our final offensive positional preview at wide receiver. Tech looted wide receiving target Ricky June, who I believe is now with the Los Angeles Rams. That's correct. Uh, Adonica Sanders, who is thought to be one of the starters, is now out for a bit with a broken collarbone that he sustained 
during the beginning of camp. James Graham, who's now back at quarterback, actually moved to wide receiver as depth before Lucas Johnson's injury forced him back to be depth at quarterback. Your presumptive starters for 2018 at wide receiver are probably going to be Brad Stewart and Jalen Camp. And looks like, according to reports from Camp, Malachi Carter has emerged as a number three choice off the bench. So in terms of wide receivers, what needs to be what needs to change about this unit for 2018 to be successful? Okay, well, before I get to what needs to change, let me just say that it has surprised me that Malachi Carter has emerged as the number three wide receiver. I really thought that it was going to be either Adonicus Sanders, Stephen Dolphus, or Jer Hawkins Anderson, guys with maybe a little bit more experience than Carter has. So it's definitely an encouraging sign to see Carter has passed them all. Clearly he's had a good camp, and I'm looking forward to seeing him on the field as the number three wide receiver. But as far as what needs to change, obviously losing Ricky June is a big blow. He was a solid target for three years for uh, Justin Thomas and then for Daquan Marshall. So for, with Brad Stewart, you know what you're getting, and it's probably not going to change a whole lot. He's an excellent blocker. He's a good pass catcher, but he's not the quickest guy in the world. I don't really think that's going to change going into this year, but you've got a little bit of an unknown in Jalen Camp as far as how's he going to block. As the number three wide receiver last year, Paul said that the reason Camp wasn't playing more was his blocking was inconsistent at best. As great as he is at pass catching, and he's a big dude, he's going to be a great big target for Taquan. Can he block enough to stay on the field for Paul? Yeah, the the um, wide receiver position's gotten kind of a lot of attention this offseason since they're one of the relatively few offensive positions that are having to replace a starter since we returned so much talent from last year on that side of the ball. What you've got there is a really pretty solid group of guys, but no one that's going to blow you away or anything, at least at the top of it with Brad Stewart and Jalen Camp. They're both strong blocking guys. They're both really good fundamental players, but they're not really the explosive type of guys that you ideally want to see, but they are just great players in their own right so they can get the job done. Below them, you've just got honestly no experience at all, which is would be more concerning, I guess, at other positions, but at wide receiver, you hope that they could probably put it together and be productive in whatever type of situation Paul Johnson decides they need to, to come in in. So there's obviously question injury question marks with Adonica Sanders and I think Stephen Dolphus too on um, this yeah, offseason. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if those two guys can maybe even show that they're as reliable as the two starting options, uh, that could be a really big deal for the future of the team too. Yep, that's a very valid point. I'm interested to see when they go to the overloaded line this year and put three guys on one side of the center and one on the other. Who are they going to stick in as the tight end kind of player like they did with Ricky June for the last couple of years? I remember the big play to June in the passing game last year against Virginia Tech was on, you know, not exactly a trick play, but a defender in the secondary probably figured that the right tackle was Ricky June. And you don't expect to see the right tackle running a route and especially getting behind you and scoring a touchdown. So it'll be interesting to see which receiver they stick down there as a kind of pseudo tight end when they go to the overloaded line this year. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, from, at least from a size perspective, both Jalen Camp and, and Dolphus have that type of capability. Dolphus more from just a size perspective because he looks – he's at, I think, 6'5", which is about what Darren Waller was when he kind of did a few similar things to that on some shallow routes and everything years ago. 
And then Jalen Campus, who's built like a linebacker in 6'2 and 217 pounds, could, could probably do that pretty well himself. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there because that formation, you know, gives the Jackets a lot more flexibility on offense and what they do in variation. So hopefully someone will step up into that position that is now vacated by Ricky June. So I'm interested to see how these two guys, Brad Stewart and Jalen Camp, how they're handling their blocking duties, especially as the option runs to the outside, right? Because you're always going to have, I want to say you have at least one receiver on the sideline and then maybe one in the slot. How are these two guys at blocking? How are they, how are they going to contribute to the fundamental principle of the tech offense and the flex mode, which is the run game? Yeah, I mean, your, your normal personnel, you're going to have one receiver on each side of the formation. But as far as Brad Stewart goes, I don't have any any reservations about his blocking ability. I mean, you can go back and look at the tape of several of the long touchdown runs last year, whether it was Kirvante Benson or Taquan Marshall or even a couple times the A-backs got loose. You see Brad Stewart 60 yards downfield still blocking his quarterback who was across from him. The guy's an unbelievable blocker, and any play ran to his side of the field. Paul has the, the, the confidence in him that he can block and that he will block successfully over there. Yeah, and then to, to hit on um, Jalen Camp a little bit too, um, he's, he's really played more than you'd expect based on his numbers as a receiver just because he kind of weaseled his way into the rotation as a blocker. So he's, that's a big, strong part of his game too. There's always room for improvement for anybody really, which is part of why Jalen Camp didn't start wasn't a starter last year behind these guys, but this year you really like what he brings to the table as both a receiver and a blocker. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Brad Stewart, for all he had played over the last couple of years, only caught his first career touchdown against Virginia Tech and still has only one career touchdown to his name, I believe. So hopefully he can be a little bit more of a big play guy this year. Somebody's going to have to step up into that role. Yeah, definitely, especially in the red zone. Been missing that aspect of the game for a while since back when we had DeAndre Smelter and um, Darren Waller on either side of the field. So hopefully those two guys can maybe become the, the next duo that can really be productive in all parts of the field. Yeah, it really adds a different element to the red zone for red zone game for our offense when we've got a receiver who can go up and win a one-on-one matchup because it makes the defense, you know, play a safety over the top or have a second defender watching the receiver. And it'll open up more room inside for the, the run game where we want to spend most of our time in the red zone. Yeah, for sure. And the, the thing that's, if there's anything concerning, it's that your number one wide receiver is not really that guy because Brad Stewart's not really the, the one-on-one playmaker that you really want to have your number one wide receiver to be just because of the type of player he is. But yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Well, hopefully one of them stands out in camp and Taquan is bombing 50-yard passes for touchdowns down to one of them soon. Looks like our first game is in two weeks, so we won't have to wait too long to see that happen, will we? So I think that kind of wraps up our offensive positional previews. Y'all got any other notes, anything we didn't touch on? It's awesome that, you know, we bring back nine starters from last year. Another one who started in 2016 in uh, Andrew Marshall. So basically 10 starters back. So, you know, let's go play some football. We've got a very experienced offense, and I'm excited to see what they can do this fall. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you guys uh, go back and forth on this stuff because you guys know a lot more about the the two-deep, de- two three-deep uh, 
kind of look than I do, just having been around longer. But as kind of kind of like Akshay, I'm I'm more this I'm like the head of the cheer club, you know, like head of the rec club football section. I'm standing there yelling for Taquan Marshall. I'm ready to see our returning starters make plays, our experienced shows on that side of the ball. And that's really something we have to capitalize on if we want to go seven and five, eight and five or eight and four, nine and three and go bowling. And I think the offense returning all those key parts is a huge part of that. Especially, like you're saying, with 10 returning starters, I see a lot of potential to produce at a higher rate than we did last year. Like, you're, you're, you're talking about the number four rushing offense in the nation. You, that's, if we're behind a non-flexbone option team, like we were with Arizona putting up more rushing offense, that's not ideal. I think we can get more rushing output I think we could be a better offense across the board. I got 37% completion percentage from Taquan is just so not great. There's just really nowhere to go but up with that. And, and you know, he's worked on that in camp. And his receiving core, despite losing Ricky June, is still pretty good. Overall, there's going to be more trust put in Taquan to run the offense than to make the right decision from Paul. Taquan for Heisman. 20, 2018, break it out again. I would I would love to have a Georgia that Tech was a, back that back. Was for a minute. The magic yeah, of- was. Oh, man, there is one tailgate that had a flag for it and everything. They believed it. Uh, hey, when you put up a lot like longer than a minute. When you put up 200 yards of total, 200 plus yards of total offense by yourself in the Tennessee game, I was rooting for him to win the Heisman at that point. If he's going to put up video game like production every week, like Lamar Jackson in 16, he should be running away with the trophy. Yeah, yeah no. he just can't carry the ball forty-four times every game, and so we can't okay, see. Yeah, well, well, that's that's game. not great. <laughs> him, no, him uh, no Georgia Tech player, home of Heisman's longest stint and his national championship. No Tech player has has been named Heisman winner, even though he was our coach. So. Hey, Joe Hamilton finished second, and honestly, he got robbed. I don't know who won that year, but he got robbed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of blind fandom we need more of around the flat. I'm actually kind of curious. Hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. Do, do you do any of y'all know who who we lost out to? I believe we had another person finish second. Was it a wide receiver? Six. I feel like it was. Was it? Somebody we had the internet, guys. Maybe. This is 2018. I think um, it was Jesus Christ that year, maybe something like that. Oh, okay, I have it. It was Ron Dane. Oh, okay. Oh. You. He went to Wisconsin. I support that. Go cheese people. So so the Heisman voting there was senior Ron Dane, who won the Heisman. Joe Hamilton, also a senior. Joe Hamilton's stat line from this from this season is insane. And then number three is our Atlanta Pride and Joy, for better or for worse, Michael Vick from Virginia Tech. Mm. Woof. Hey, well, I forgot he played that far back. Yeah. I mean, this is 1999. He led uh, VPSU to a great, uh, to a great season that year. But you know, the great Dane, he was a good running back. Got to get credit where credit is due. Hamilton had a great career on the flats. Yeah, but Taquan, money. I'm putting my money on those odds. Put ten dollars in. I don't know what the odds are, but that's a good investment, right? Sports betting. Heck has like a five hundred to one chance to win national title. I feel like that's a good safe bet, right? 
Is it worth a dollar at least? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you put in a dollar, you win 500. That seems like a great return. Yeah, I think Jeff Schultz wrote a really good article. Well, I mean, as much of stock as you put in Jeff Schultz at The Athletic about the championship odds of various Georgia-based sports teams. I say Georgia-based because he included Athens Community College. I think Atlanta United has 4-1 to odds. The Braves have 20-1 to odds. The Falcons have 16-1 to odds. And then Tech has 500-1. to And then the Hawks are like, something ridiculously not possible to where he didn't put the odds down on the sheet. Ah, train mania. Disrespectful. Hey, you know, they got mellow. I think they're going to be a really good team this year. Oh, with, yeah. With Hawks legend mellow. Thank you for using his, uh, his actual title. I appreciated that. You guys are paying him enough to be a good player this year. Oh, yeah. What is it, like $27 million in buyout money? Something like that. Oh boy, I so do love the NBA, and I totally love the Atlanta Hawks. I go to all of their games. Lies, lies. There's been a one Hawks game. Lies. <laughs> I hope the Hawks get better in the future, but uh, that is not related to Georgia Tech sports. So. Hey, I'm still on the cheese people thing, so you're you're closer than I am. Well, we were talking about Joe Hamilton. I don't care about Ron Dane. Joe Hamilton <laughs> got robbed. Just listen to the stat line. Hold on. 203 completions on 305 attempts, 3,060 yards, uh, 29 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions. And also, most importantly, I think a win versus Georgia at home that season. That's our last win against uh, Georgia on the flats, by the way. Did you have to say that? You had to say that? (laughs) I was born that year. That's not not something I want to hear. Christ, you were born in 1999. Man, that makes me feel old. Oh, man, Akshay was born in 1997. What? We're going to make so many people that listen to this feel so old. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not the one complaining about my age, old man. (laughs) Okay, Mr. 1998. Get over it. All right. With that talk about age out of the way, let's get to the stinger this week. So, Paul signed a two-year extension to 2021 this offseason. Does his performance at Tech so far deserve that extension? Or has it earned him that extension? So my deal with contract extensions for college coaches is that people sometimes get caught up in it being an indicator of performance when in fact it's just something that you have to do. If you have a coach whose contract is going to expire in 2019, I think it was, or maybe twenty at the end of 2018, whatever it was before. I think it was 2019. 2019, Yeah. That you're, you're putting your program at a big disadvantage with recruiting because all of a sudden you've given your recruiting rivals a bunch of ammunition to use against you that, well, yeah, this guy's not going to be back, so you're basically signing to play with a guy for one year, you know, whatever. So it just puts the whole team at a big disadvantage to have coaches that are not under contract for at least three or four years, which is now what, exactly what we've got is a coach who's under contract for, I think, three more years after this year, which is basically a full recruiting cycle, so... I mean, it happens all around college football, and it's not really a big indicator of performance. The whole indicator of performance, really, for college coaches is the fact that you still have your job, basically. Yep, that was said very, very well. If you want to be competitive in recruiting, you've got to have a contract that extends, you know, hopefully out to where the recruits are going to be graduating that you're trying to get that year. So as far as the performance goes, I understand, you know, 3-9 and in 2015, 5-6 and in 2017, not great. and 
to the the sidewalk Georgia Tech football fan, they were probably very surprised to see Paul Johnson get that extension this offseason and probably, as I saw on social media, more than a little bit upset about that decision. But just know that that extension is by no means is an indication of confidence in Paul by Todd Stansberry or anybody else in the athletic department, but merely just a recruiting tool so that Paul has what he needs to go out there and be a top-tier college football coach. It's an investment in the future more than it's a statement on the last year, if that makes sense. Yep. I think we'd, none of us want to be paying you know, three or four revenue sports coaches instead of just the two that we currently have coaching, but it's a way of life, you know, even if we're still paying Paul Hewitt and Brian Gregory a little bit of money. I think the Brian Gregory contract actually expired this year, but the Hewitt awesome. contract is still on. I don't know about signing Hewitt to a uh, automatically renewing six-year contract or whatever it was. That was a uh, – I don't know about that one. That's a questionable decision. It'd be yeah. more worth it if he won that freaking national championship in 04, but I digress. Yeah. Well, you know, that was, what, 14 years ago? Uh, yep. That's water under the bridge now. But so my, my thoughts on the Paul Johnson extension – I'm not a sidewalk Georgia Tech fan, but I definitely was a little upset about it. Like, I get the logical explanation. Like, you need you need to have them on for this long so that you can recruit effectively. But I kind of looked at it from the NFL player standpoint, if this makes sense, to where the last two years of his deal should have been prove-it years, especially given that in the Two of the last three years, we haven't been to a bowl game, whereas the past 25 years before that, we had been in bowl games. So I I think, and obviously this is a hot take given that the extension makes logical sense, but I I really think he shouldn't have gotten that extension. And these two years should have been like, should have been Todd Stansbury saying, look, you need to tell me with your performance these two seasons whether you want to keep your job. Yeah, I get that, but you look at the success he's had over the first seven years he was the coach, and even in 2016, going 9-4, and four, and you say he's got a proven track record of being a good college football coach, and even if, even if he's starting to slip a little bit, which I'm not indicating in any means, even by 2021, we, the program won't be in shambles, and if you fire him, you only have to pay him for a couple extra years in 2021. I do respect Paul as a coach, and I think, and like I agree, he he's been a really good football coach wherever he's gone. It's just I think it's just the principle of the thing for me, right? Given recent performance and the idea around college football, where it's very "what have you done for me lately" sort of environment, I think those two years should have been prove it years. Obviously, not logically feasible not recruiting wise feasible but that's just the way that i feel like that should have been handled for better or for worse yeah i agree with you in principle but i don't think that's practical in reality you know so i i think i agree but i never operate in a sense of reality anyway do i (laughs) practicality's never really been my strong suit i'm just a balloon of hot takes this is true All right, anything else on the offense, about Paul, about volleyball, which we talked about earlier? Hey, 
that's something I can contribute about. I think I forgot to mention my player of the game, or did I mention that? Michaela Dowd, definitely buy buy low on Michaela Dowd. She's going to be great. Uh, The libera looked great, too. She's a freshman as well. Young team. Go volleyball. Go Jackets. Michaela Dowd, the one from Chicago. Yes, it's the one from Chicago. Oh, don't judge. Right. I don't know if I don't she know does. if I can take this recognition seriously. Hey, she she went to Spry, great club team. Matia Valley's turned out some good athletes. I I'm I'm buying low, selling high on Michaela Dowd. She's gonna have a great career on the flats. Calling I right hope home. she does, but I hope you're not making that decision just based on civic pride, Mister Chicago. I may or may not be staring at my Chicago flag. That is my window drapes, but that's neither here nor there. I am an unbiased non-rev reporter. Thank you very much. So he says. I will pitch in and say that they kept feeding her whether the Auburn front line knew they were going to or not, and she kept delivering kills. And even when her time (laughs) came to rotate onto the back row, you know, she came up with 10 digs. She's a very adequate back row player, and she can still contribute back there, too. I mean, they set her coming out of the back row several times, and she got kills out of the back row. So to have somebody who can do those kinds of things on the court will change everything for this team, I hope. Her numbers were gaudy, and her putting the ball right into Auburn 22's face was pretty (laughs) sick as well. Was that the one where she basically spiked it right into 22's skull? And 22 kind of flipped over? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my god! That like was, a rocket. Yeah, that was a bomb. Some impressive arm strength. So, am I right to assume you would have known Auburn Twenty Two's name if she had also been from Chicago? I'm pretty sure you would have. Mm, bias? Fake news? <laughs> you might say so. I definitely don't have my hidden agenda. A non-rep writer with a hidden agenda. Who's surprised? Ah, you're a funny guy, actually. <laughs> I try to be. I try to be. All right. Well. Uh, thank you all for tuning in this week. Cade, where can they find you online? FTRS Cade on Twitter or Facebook. Be friends with Cade on Facebook, everyone. Jake, no where can they find you online? Oh, boy. Uh, it'll be real hard to find me on Facebook unless you're already friends with somebody like Cade or Akshay or Ethan because seven years ago when I created my Facebook, I was the 146th person named Jake Grant to be on Facebook. So if, if you want to take a long time to find me, you could start there. Otherwise, I'm at Canabean on Twitter. That's a long story as well, but a better one. And then, uh, of course, uh, Monday or Tuesday every week, you got Yellow Jacket Roundup. And on Thursday, you got Rearview Mirror for your history fix right on from the Rumble Seat. And Mr. Kreger. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Kreger. I tweet sometimes about Georgia Tech from hot takes to cool takes, let's say. And you can find <laughs> me on Facebook at Ethan Kreger. I don't do the Twitter thing, but you can, I don't know, find me on Facebook or all my stories on from the Rumble Seat are tweeted from FTRS blog. So you can catch me there. So yeah, you can find all of us at fromtherumbleseat.com and we will see you next time on The Flats. Peace out.